Hello, and welcome back to this eighth episode of the Memory Historical Languages podcast. Uh, I'm Sean McCarthy, and I'm joined today by Alison Carradi, Sarah Ward, Tasha Smith, and our special guest, uh, Judy Bowman. And today we'll be talking a little, we'll be talking to Judy about uh, her experience recording and sharing uh, stories from the community. So first of all, Judy, uh, on behalf of everybody here, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to join us today. Well, thank you, Sean. I'm very honored to be asked. I'm not sure what to expect, but I'll just go with it. <laughs> sure. We'll try to confine ourselves within the the limits of modesty uh, okay. for, the, for the next half hour. That's Sean's <laughs> way of telling you not to talk. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that, Allison. Uh, <laughs> so you can see, uh, we're we're a very lively group. Um, so, but yeah, but maybe Judy, maybe kind of start off. Uh, Sarah kind of gave you a bit of an introduction last week in our last episode. Um, but maybe, uh, I'd just like to maybe kind of, uh, offer you the floor to kind of talk about, um, your, yourself and your experience, uh, as, as a writer and, uh, yeah. And then kind of, like I say, kind of hearing stories and, and, and gathering them over time. Mm-hmm. Well, my experience as a writer began, I'm told, when I was about two years old. And my great-grandmother kept every card she was ever sent in the world, including the ones I sent her. And about three years ago, I was going through her things, and I found a little note from my mom on a card that I had sent my great-grandmother and said she's going to send all her books to you. So I think I started writing at two years old. I didn't actually begin until I could learn how to write, you know, do my ABCs and all of that. But what came with my great grandmother was a love of stories. She taught me to read before I went to school. And she was the most amazing woman. She had traveled to the States. She had worked in Lowell, Massachusetts. And then in the evening, sometimes after I braided her hair, she would tell me these wonderful stories about Lowell, Massachusetts. And I thought it had to be heaven. I'm never going there because I don't want to be disappointed. But I look back on her now and I think she's a young woman. This is in the 1800s and she's traveling to the US to work. From there, there were stories around our kitchen table all the time. I knew about Aunt Phoebe, I knew about this woman and that woman, and they were dead decades before I was even born, but they still lived in people's memory. I began to write my first novel when I was 10 years old, and it was about kids, of course, no adults allowed, uh, going on great adventures. I really wish I knew where that manuscript was, but I, I did like I did like stories like that, and of course, reading is my passion. My childhood was very, shall I say, we moved so many times. I can't even tell you what grade I did in which province, and what kept me going were the stories of my great grandmother 
the ones that she had told me, and then the books I was reading. So gradually, on and on, my next big thing was reading the diary of Anne Frank. And Anne Frank became my best friend in the world because I was very shy, believe it or not. <laughs> I was very shy and introverted. And we were going through a lot of family issues at the time. We moved here, there, everywhere. I never knew what province I was going to wake up in, but I had my friend with me. And I wrote to her for years. I still do. <laughs> she, Dear Anne, this is what's going on in my life. So that was my writing practice. And then gradually, I just began writing short stories in grade nine. Helen Jones from school. It was St. Thomas when I went there. That's how long ago it was. It was before James M. Hill was built. I had written a story for grade nine, and she sent it off somewhere and told me I should be a writer. And then life got in the way after I went to about five or six other schools after that. Again, story kept me going, remembering my great-grandmother, remembering the home, remembering everything we did. That was my security. Does that make sense to you at all? Like it's just, if I need to feel good about myself or if I need to feel safe, I think of Grammy's hex or Gama's hex as we called it. Next, I got into nursing. <laughs> so much for the writer. And my biggest love in my job was listening to stories of my patients. And we had a lot of newcomers. In I worked in Kitchener-Waterloo, Ontario. At Canada, now it's Grand River Hospital. And we had a lot of newcomers there. And I heard a lot of amazing stories. Unbelievable. I feel very grateful for where I live. And I've had hard times like everybody else, but I didn't have to deal with any of that. Moved to Miramichi in 1992, going to be a writer. <laughs> and I became a writer. I joined the Writers' Federation. I started sending publications here, there, and everywhere. And once in a while, they were picked up. I wrote for the leader for a long time as a freelancer, and I mean freelancer. They wanted me to write about interesting people in the community, and perhaps I'm going against the grain or went against the grain, but I found the most interesting people were just the average person around, volunteers, that are, for example, running the community kitchen and just giving of their time. Other people just with, with great stories. So I did that for a long time. Anyway, it all worked out. I worked at the seniors' home for about 20 years. Again, great people there, great stories, and I worked on the veterans' unit. So I learned a lot about veterans. And I was always kind of in trouble with the staff because if they couldn't find me, I was down in a room listening to someone when I probably should have been doing something else. Who knows? 
Um, so I've been writing and I have a Life of Gift Passed On, a collection of uh, elder stories. And I love the project and I'm still doing that. I'm about to move forward. It's a very slow process on another collection of stories of newcomers called Two Worlds Within Me. So that's a little challenging. I think they're very shy people and who knows what the background history is. So that's where I'll stop for now. Sarah, did you want me to talk about Harry now? No, um, the floor is yours. Well, we always meet people in our lives who completely change our worldview, our ideas on who we are, what we are, and where we are. And during the year of the veteran, Sarah introduced me to Harry Narvi. And Harry Narvi from Eskinobadich, and he was a Korean War veteran. And what a lovely man he was. So we were talking about his experiences in the military, and he was so proud. He was in 2PPCLI, and that was a battalion that won the presidential citation during the Korean War. And I said, well, at one point I said, that must have been really hard for you, Harry, being up on a mountain, freezing to death, you know, stomping around to keep warm. And he said, I said, must have been awful. He says, no, well, yes, it wasn't great. But he says, you know what? He said, I could shoot back. I could defend myself. And I said to him, what do you mean, Harry? And he said, well, at Shuby, I couldn't. And I, I looked at him like, what? And I asked again, I said, what do you mean, Harry? He said, I went to a residential school, Shubenacadie. And I looked at him and I thought, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. So happily and to my honor, he explained to me that when he was four years old, I believe it was the Indian agents that came to his community and they told his mother to make an X on the page. So she did. And then they told her, oh, you just signed away your child to the government. Well, how would, how would she know that? So he took, they took him to Shubenacadie at four years old. And that breaks my heart. Can you imagine your own child or a child you know just being whisked away and the stories he shared were horrifying they wouldn't let him speak Mi'kmaq he was punished if he did there was a lot of things happened at Shubenacadie that you've seen in 
what is being unearthed from other residential school sites. And I was horrified. And the main reason I was horrified is I didn't know anything about it. And I thought, what kind of a country do I live in? It really changed me. But all I can see is that little face in my mind looking out the back window at his mother. And he had a really hard time. And he came home and people were unkind to him. He said people in his community were very unkind. He says, I'm not sure whether it was because they thought I was educated and thought I was too big for my britches or, or what have you. But he couldn't settle into the life. He was so used to structure, do this, do that at a certain time. And that had been until he was 16 years old and came home from Shubenacadie. And here's another thing he said. They sent him home on the train from Shuby and he got to the station and there's this woman there and he said, and I quote, that woman could have been any woman. I didn't know her. It was my mother. He hadn't seen her since he was four years old. So he had a really difficult time settling in. He did a lot of traveling. But to regain some, I would say, of his life, he joined the military because he was used to the discipline. And he came back. I think he traveled. There was a lot of a story he didn't tell me. And he was a very kind man, very kind. And I promised him that any chance I got, I would tell his story. And I have. There was something else, but it escapes me now. He's very humorous, too. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he had the most magnificent, oh, he had the most wonderful smile. He had the most wonderful smile. And when I did the story, and I did it for the Year of the Veteran, and it went to the collection for the province, he was so proud. He was really very, very proud of this. And I was very happy that I could help him. One of the last things he said to me was, uh, you know, they, when we have the powwow, they get me to light the sacred fire. He felt at home in his community again, and he felt like he was home at last. Whatever home meant to Harry, I would say a uh, feeling of belonging. So that's one of the stories, just one, that I was honored with over the years. And uh, I will never forget him, and I hope nobody else does either. Yeah, Harry was a very, 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 he was a very gentleman, as I can describe him. He was very humorous. I remember when I first met him was in the old ground, right? And uh, he was there. Um, actually, was, he was one of my clients, so we talked there. And he told me about, he, he's got 
he knows about his uh, geographic in the the Asian country. He he pronounces them pretty good. He says things like you know right to the T. And uh, he says to me because I had a little dog at the time. He says uh, don't let them find your your, your dog because they're gonna have it for lunch. Like, you know, so he always teased me about my dog, like, you know, he says, because I guess um, how soldiers survived back then, he was talking about, you know, anything was game because there was no food and they were like the mm-hmm. battlefield, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, but he humorized, even though you know, it was a tragic thing, but he humorized it to, to tell his stories. And which I always remember that because he, he had a good laugh too when he laughed, he had a good laugh too. Mm-hmm. So Harry is related to... You all met her, Karen Narby. Mm-hmm. One of the, the one that, that's uh, I think his his her, his uncle, I think it is. So, but he's uh, well, Karen's her cousin. Karen's her cousin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what is her position again, there, Sean? Uh, she's the executive director with the Indigenous Tourism Association. She has a meeting with us now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're one of our partners in the in the project, along with the Friends of Old Bears and uh, the Tourism, Heritage, and Culture. I was just going to question, Sarah, did you say that um, Harry would be Karen's uncle? Yeah, I believe, yeah, they're, I think that's his uncle. So they're related there. Oh, cool. And uh, but when I met Harry, he was looking to tell his story. He wanted somebody, like, you know, he'd come to me and said, I, I want to tell my story. He wanted to document his experience. He wants somebody to know, you know, and I kind of think he was giving it to me, but to me, I'm thinking that I, I, I'm I, still going through my own healing, I guess, at, at boarding school myself, so I couldn't really articulate how to put it to words myself. And then so I'm, I'm at Judy at the university when we're taking courses. And then I learned that she's starting to write stories, and then she said, she told me, she said, can you help me? I need to meet some uh, veterans, you know. I'm writing veteran stories, and he says, can you introduce me some First Nations veterans? And I said, aha, uh-huh, that's Harry. <laughs> so that's when I introduced her to Harry. And another person who I introduced her was uh, Margaret Labillawa. She was also a very interesting woman and a very interesting story she had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about oh, Margaret? That was... yeah. Oh, yes. I I, she was an amazing woman. I still have a picture of her holding a basket in her hands that she had taken up traditional basket weaving and things like that. And she never, ever was going to cave to the pressure of not speaking Mi'kmaq, ever. Even if they had to, even if she had to do it outside the, schools and things like that. She was taking nursing, if I recall correctly, and she was going home and somebody, must have been a recruiter from the Air Force, said to her, you know, you could make a lot more money if you join the Air Force. So she did. And she was an aerial photographer. And she, the one story I, I will not forget is when she was learning how to do it, she practically had to hang the camera out into the airstream or the jet stream or whatever you call it under a plane 
and do the photography. And the fellow with her says, you know, don't drop that camera because if you do, you might as well jump after it because it's going to take you the rest of your life to pay for it. <laughs> and she thought that was funny. And when she came home, she made a point of keeping the Mi'kmaq traditions alive and passed down. So a lot of what was taken away and erased she kept it and passed it on. So that woman is amazing, was amazing. She still is amazing. I don't think she's gone. I think her her uh, influence lives on. And I wanted to include Indigenous people in the Year of the Veterans stories that I was doing, give everybody a voice. That's it. So i still doing it. <laughs> That is amazing. I never got the opportunity to meet Margaret, but I um, was able to go a few months ago to visit uh, her great or her granddaughter's home. Her great granddaughter took me up there, and I was able to stay with her family for a few days. And I basically, what you said, uh, her granddaughter allowed me to go through all her documentation she kept about her, about Margaret. And what an amazing woman! What a good role model for many indigenous communities like you were saying to just staying strong and i was also given the opportunity to be able to see uh where glue scap sleeps up there um <laughs> laying down across the uh from the beach and i was just so it kind of pertains to what we're talking about with folklore and whatnot and myths and legends so i just mm -hmm. what a beautiful place up there i highly recommend everyone go visit your river bar yeah it is beautiful yeah we went to go see margaret that day when uh, judy was interviewing her and while we're interviewing margaret these little people came in, which was, very, which was very so beautiful. These little people came in right after school. Um, they put their jackets and their book bags down, and they went right to work, right, Judy? One started sweeping the floor. The other one started peeling potatoes. And these are little, little, little people. And it was, it was so beautiful how they came in to just take care of their grandmother. You know, they did their chores. They cooked the meal. And these they were even more than probably... 12 years old, right? Those little kids at the time. I think the older one was 12 years old or something like that. And the others like all, all pitching. And we were like looking at each other. Wow. <laughs> she was, she had something. She had a presence about her. Mm -hmm. That, well, I was very honored to meet her. Really very yeah. honored. Very gentle. Her either. Yeah, she's very gentle, gentle and very soft-spoken. And she she makes you feel at home, and she makes you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, she, as you say, Sarah, she would be a great role model for everyone who's gone through challenging times. And there are a lot of challenging times, as we're all finding that out here. And it's uh, it's quite amazing. But those type of stories nourish me. As from my and other people I've met as well over the years for the anthology, Sarah's in the anthology, with, and she has an amazing story. And Joe, her husband, is in an amazing, amazing storyteller, that man. And the other people in it as well, they just sort of showed up. And 
I interviewed them and I found out very quickly on that it wasn't the story I wanted. It was the story they wanted to tell. So I had to release a lot of my control freakishness and make sure they were happy with what was in the book. Uh, one woman was 14 years old. Her name is Maya Houston. She's Dutch, speaks four language, swears fluently in seven. <laughs> and she, she at, during the hunger winter of 1945, at 14 years of age, walked across Holland from Amsterdam to the farms because people were starving. And I mean starving. There was 10,000 more than 10,000, almost 20,000, just in the Amsterdam region alone. And uh, which links me to another story of a veteran, uh, Emmanuel Godet from Colette. And he had joined the military because the black flies were unbearable. He and his friend says, that's it. I can't take this anymore. I'm going. We're going to join the army. So they did. And he said, I went through France. He said, I didn't know what we were fighting for. I didn't know what we were fighting for. You know, I did my job. I put the shells in. We shot them, kept going and going. He says, when I got to Amsterdam, I knew why we were fighting. He said, I looked at those people. They were bone, skin and bone, and they were starving. And he says, men were coming up and offering me their wives for some food or their children or whatever, just needing, needing something. And Maya confirms a lot of this story as well. And being a great guy, he and a few of his buddies says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. They got to get, they got some food for them and gave it to the man and his wife. And I also knew a woman from Amsterdam, Maria, and what she said about the hunger winter was nothing more than a really, if you heard it, you would know the depth of anguish in her voice. We were so hungry. She's just a wee girl. Anyway, so here I am hopping through <laughs> everything. I'm just jumping from topic to topic. Does anybody else have a question or anything they'd like to know? What would be your most memorable moment throughout all your experiences of conversations or interviews? The most memorable moment and the life-changing moment was Harry Narvey. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky to be able to see him just before he passed away. His family allowed me to go in and talk to him and he didn't respond, but I could tell he was listening to me because I could see his eyes twitch a little bit. I was a nurse for a long time as well. And that's when I made my promise to Harry. 
that I would always tell his story. Anyway, so. Was, was Harry from, you said, um, Eskinobovich, Burnt Church? Mm-hmm. Which would make sense because of the relation to Karen. And uh, mm-hmm. my my maternal grandfather is also from that community or when he was younger. And he was telling me stories that his mother sent him to Metamonagia so they wouldn't take him to Shuby. So when he was quite young, he was sent from Burnt Church to Red Bank. And he now resides in Eel Brown. Mm-hmm. Not far from Sarah. <laughs> no, it was it was a big secret. Everything was a secret. Even I think it was Esther Ward that said my mom would send us to hide, and we didn't know why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the most impact. But every single story, a veteran story has really made an impact on me. They did what they had to do. They were human beings who suffered after as much as before and during the war. And they really added to my life. Well, all stories add to my life. (laughs) Meeting you all today, meeting Sean, you know, And when I hear a story, I'm there. I'm in it. Does anybody else experience that? Yeah. So it's like sometimes when people are talking, I'm like so silent because I'm still taking it in. It's like, oh, I'm not ignoring you. I was just, I'm absorbing it. And like all these pictures are running through my mind. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that I don't want to keep talking to you. It's just kind of like I'm soaking it in like a little dry sponge. (laughs) I've that many times in my life of being told I was daydreaming. I'm not daydreaming. I'm absorbing everything. And in my mind, I can see what you're telling me. I'm picturing it, but I'm here. I'm listening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The joy of story. I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. And like you guys were saying, like through your experiences, when people talk to you or ask you questions, I always use this analogy or metaphor that uh, when I go through my head, it's like taking a book and just taking the pages and spreading it. You know what I mean? Because you got so many words on each page and all these experiences and stuff you remember reading. And then it's like making sure you're placing them in the right area when you go to regurgitate it. And you're like, oh, there's so much, but I love it. <laughs> well, I'm never bored. Yeah, I'm never right. bored. Never bored. I can be anywhere in the world at any given time and any person I want to be. <laughs> All I have to do is think about it. And I would say that would be my my greatest gift is imagination. And 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 I love books. And and I know uh Sean and I had been speaking before this podcast. I write stories as well. And where do they come from? And sometimes I think it's our ancestors sharing these with us, maybe not exactly in that time frame, but the the elements of a story, tragedy, uh, heroism, things like that. I wonder if some of what's coming through is ancestors trying to tell us, hey, could you please tell my story one way or another? And I also find it healing when you tell a story. 
for me, for some of the stories I've told people about my personal life, that has been healing for me. So when we share a story in a group like this, we always, at least I'm speaking, I should be speaking for myself. I always get something from everybody in the room or everybody who shares. I, I take a bit of you with me. I'm a ghost collector. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I know this is supernatural, right? <laughs> yes. It's like that saying, we all have a place in a story and we all have our own story to tell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Judy's also a member of the Words on Water. She has these oh, uh, yes. reading session or um, mm -hmm. little sessions of readings and uh, what else you do? Poetry. And she gives little Poetry writing readings. lessons. Yeah. yeah. Workshops and yeah, Words on Water. Michelle Cadogan and I started that in 2005 or six. I think it was just before the Year of the Veteran because she, all the projects I did for Year of the Veteran, she put up in the studio, Harry and uh, Margaret and the other fellows. And we want to support writers and promote writers, new and emerging. So most of our workshops are free. Well, they are free. <laughs> and I like to have book launches for my friends. And I want to have a book launch for Zev Bagel, who has a book out about solitary, about a person who's been incarcerated. I believe it was in Iran at a certain time. So I'm hoping to arrange that sometime as well. And you're all invited. And we do have a website being built and a Facebook page that I'm really bad at updating. <laughs> Anything, and it's a great words on water, actually, uh, because we're an in, we're incorporated, that helped us fund the Life of Gift Passed On project. And the other project was the literary trail. And one of the other members did that, uh, Sandra Bunting. That was her baby. My legacy project was Life a Gift Passed On. Well, any other questions? <laughs> Sean, do you have anything you want to ask me? Well, I think I took care of most of the things I wanted to ask you when we actually had our, our you know, one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. So I think... Uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, I really appreciate again that you that you took the time to speak with us today and really kind of uh, provide your insight on uh, how important stories can be um, individually and collectively as well. With that said, and mindful that we've uh, kind of reached our time here today, uh, again, I want to thank you. I want to thank uh, Tasha and Sarah and Allison for, for joining us as well and for uh, their contributions and for being such a consistent presence here uh, over, the, over the weeks. And we will all see you again next week. But uh, for the moment, Judy, I'd like to, I'd like to offer you uh, the last word to close us out today. The last word. Pay attention 
to what is being said to you, to what you're hearing, but most of all, inside. And don't believe the BS. If you're hearing something negative, it's not you. Think about your own story and how you're framing your life and your story right now. I'm a bit older than all of you, and I am now in the position where I'm looking back on my life and saying, oh yeah, that was tough, but wow, did I ever learn a lot? So you are your own story. You write it the way you want, and if there's events that happen that you can't control, I know you can learn from them. And thrive, not survive, thrive. Salut. <laughs> <laughs>